The holidays are a moment of togetherness and joy and a reminder of how tradition creates happy and fulfilled communities. Make this holiday season patriotic with a visit to National Harbor and its stunning new Spirit Park. Marvel at one of the largest American flags in the region and beautiful displays of American art. Make this holiday season the most meaningful of all at National Harbor. Learn more at nationalharbor.com dash spirit park. Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's to stand on Scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may. We're on the we're on the same side. We may disagree on certain theological issues, yeah, but, I, but I, we're I, on I, the same I, side. No, not at all. And, and look how nice we are each other. No, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord. It's like you know what. What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on when you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, we're not supposed to be blind sheep. We're supposed to be Bereans. And so just to, no matter who it is, this goes for everybody. Um, you're, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Okay, welcome everybody to Conversations with Jeff. I am really excited to bring back for the third time. We've got uh, Dr. Andy Woods, and uh, we're going to have a fun talk today covering uh, his chapter in the upcoming book, Social Injustice, uh, talking about eschatology and social justice and that sort of thing. So welcome back to the podcast, Andy, and glad we could sit down and do this. Hey, great to be here, and uh, I'm excited about the book, and I think it's going to deal with some important stuff yeah definitely and and for everybody that's out there watching as well um we've got uh pre-orders going right now for the book you guys can go over to socialinjusticebook.com use the code andy you guys will get a free audiobook version of the book and all the authors are going to read their chapters in their own voice so that'll be kind of fun and interesting and that sort of thing as well uh make sure you guys do that i know that we're going to be closing pre-orders here pretty soon and we're hoping to have the book out, we're hoping sometime into this month, tentatively, that sort of thing. We're still dealing with logistics, but should be coming out pretty soon. So make sure you guys right. do that. So, um, but yeah, really, you really, I'm really excited that we could sit down and we could do this. And I think, you know, part of it too is that I think that from the eschatological, if that's even pronouncing it properly, I feel like there's so many implications with social yeah. justice, Absolutely. not, not only just how, eschatology is influencing social justice, but how social justice is dealing with end times prophecy itself. So it'll be kind of an interesting thing to dive, dive into, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so just as we're kind of like, you know, setting up and as people are kind of, you know, coming on and that sort of thing, like if you could just briefly explain what is the biblical eschatology, and then we can kind of compare and contrast with what some of these other guys are preaching and teaching and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, first of all, eschatology, um, just to define that, eschat, it comes from, these are Greek words, so eschat means last, 
or end. And ology means study of. So eschatology is the branch of theology dealing with what the Bible says about the end. And most people may be shocked to discover that 27% of the Bible was eschatological at the time it was written. Some of those prophecies have been fulfilled, but many of them haven't. And so that's over a quarter of the Bible, you know, dealing with this subject. And Peter, in Second Peter 1, verse 19, call, calls eschatology, or the prophets, prophecy, kind of a lamp shining in a dark place that we would do well to pay attention to. So the world is very dark, but eschatology is sort of a reminder that God is in control of human history. But my basic eschatology comes from a literal, consistent literal method of interpretation of the whole Bible. So I'm what you call pre-pre, pre-millennial, meaning the kingdom is going to come only when Jesus comes back first, pre millennium pre-kingdom so the church will not set up the kingdom of god on the earth but jesus is going to set it up once his feet touch down on planet earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and in the meantime uh we're not going to see kingdom conditions on the earth uh we're going to see god at work some are going to get saved but at the same time evil men and imposters will wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived you know there's going to be uh good fit bad fish amongst the good fish matthew 19 uh, tares amongst the wheat also I, I don't know if i said matthew 19 i meant to say matthew 13 and um i'm not really looking for a lot of optimism and progress other than individual salvations in the present age i'm not looking for kingdom conditions in the present age uh the kingdom conditions social justice the cure for poverty, you know, racism, all of these kinds of things will be implemented by Christ himself. It's not something that the church can usher in. So obviously this is very different than what we hear from social justice circles, and so that's why I think biblical eschatology is on a collision course uh, with social justice theology, and that's sort of what I tried to unpack in the chapter that I wrote for you. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that one one of the things that and I know we've talked about this in previous podcasts as well is this idea on how kingdom now theology is impacting mm-hmm. this social justice push and and I think that the cultural marxists both inside the church and outside the church are kind of taking advantage of this in order to establish a lot of these principles of establishing social justice and trying to erase all these different, you know, perceived offenses and things like that. Um, what, what's it, do you, is that, is that kind of what you're thinking is happening is basically, do you think that it's a direct implication of having that theology or do you think that it's being hijacked by people for their own gain? Well, I think some in their heart of hearts believe it's a true theology post post millennialism, which is the idea that the church will set up the kingdom and Jesus will come back after the kingdom's over and find the world in apple pie order is obviously diametrically opposed to what I'm saying here, premillennialism. And uh, amillennialism, that there will be no earthly kingdom because Jesus is reigning now in the church, has been around for a long time also. Um, But I would say this, those systems I think are being used today to get people away from 
what Scripture reveals about uh, the kingdom. Because the type of eschatology that I represent is a direct conflict with what social justice, the social justice movement, the direction they want to take us. And so consequently, I think they've sort of latched on to, they didn't invent it, uh, millennialism or post-millennialism, but they've latched on to it as a way to sort of dismantle pre-millennialism. Just to back up a second, I said my eschatology is pre-pre, pre-millennial, tried to explain that earlier, but it's also pre-tribulational, meaning the rapture of the church will take place at least seven years or more before Jesus touches down on planet Earth to establish his kingdom. We're not going to be here for the tribulation as the church. God is getting Israel ready to receive her her unfinished uh, promises uh, through converting her to faith, and then the kingdom will be established. So that's why the gathering of the Jews into the land is sort of exciting, because it shows you the time period that we're living in. You know, God perhaps is getting ready to do that final act. But um, very different than social justice theology. And so I think they didn't, to answer your question, I don't think they invented those other millennial views, but they've certainly latched onto them. Because the view I represent is an inconvenient truth to the direction they think the world is going to go in. Yeah. Well, you know, so, so dealing with kind of the timing of when the rapture is going to happen. Like, so because you were, you were specifying that you're, you're pre-trib. So does, does the point of it either being mid-trib or post-trib or, um, you know, whatever it is, does that have any impact on kind of the implications of what we're seeing in the church today? Um, I don't know if social justice people would really stand up and cheer for post-trib or mid-trib, although John Piper does. He's post-trib. Um, I think they're against I think they've embraced those other rapture views because they're adamantly pre-trib and they're just looking for something to grab onto because they view, and I think I quote him in the chapter, view us as an eschatology of abandonment. You know, they think we're abandoning the earth. And um, I don't think we're abandoning the earth. I think the Lord is going to evict Satan from this earth and is going to bring us back to the earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, and we're going to rule for a thousand years. That, to me, is not abandonment. But they look at us as an eschatology of abandonment, and that's why they're always doing whatever they can do to bash the or denigrate the pre-trib rapture. Yeah. Now, 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 when we're looking specifically at social justice, and and you know, and I think that really what this comes down to is there, like like what you were saying as well is that. They're trying to usher in Christ's kingdom. They're trying to usher that in as if we have to establish it here on earth before Christ can even come back, as if we have control over God's timing. Um, But so when we're looking at like a lot of these different issues, whether it's income inequality or race issues or, you know, no borders or whatever that is, like are, are all of those issues directly impacted with eschatology, like if they if they succeed at getting rid of borders, if they succeed at having this hierarchy and that sort of thing, is is that going to have any implications moving forward in like biblical prophecy or something along those lines? Well, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting ways to answer that question. Um, they they love the kingdom now because the the kingdom then when it's not biblically defined becomes this sort of amor- amorphous spiritual thing 
that they can fill with their own meaning. So if you're into wealth redistribution or open borders or whatever, you just say, well, the kingdom is Marxism and, you know, those kind of things. So they love this idea of the kingdom. They hate the idea of actually biblically defining the kingdom because that doesn't give them any wiggle room to, to pour their own worldview into. Um, give me the second part of that question again. Uh, well, well, I think is, is there going to be any direct implications of – if they succeed, you know, so like, for example, I, I kind of have kind of taken on the position that I think that what what a lot of these guys are doing is they're actually ushering in the kingdom of the Antichrist. Because, yes, because, yes. When, because when you think about it, they're trying to get rid of borders. They're dealing with income inequality. So that way the government control the currency and that sort of thing. And so I think looking at the ultimate goal, they may they may think that they're ushering in the kingdom of Christ. But I think really what it comes down to is that they're unknowingly, hopefully unknowingly, ushering in the rule of the Antichrist. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because the next kingdom on the horizon, uh, according to the book of Revelation, according to Daniel's prophecy there in Daniel 2, is the feet of iron and clay, which would be the kingdom of the Antichrist. And that kingdom is going to be replaced by the stone cut without human hands, which crushes the feet and causes a whole statue to fall and grows and grows and grows till it subdues the whole earth. So the reality of the situation is God's kingdom is not the next kingdom on the horizon. The next kingdom on the horizon is the Antichrist kingdom. And so if your whole mission in life is to be a kingdom builder or to be a kingdom man, you know, all these slogans thrown around today. The issue is whose kingdom are you actually building? Well, chronolo chronologically, if chronology means anything, you're contributing to the kingdom of the Antichrist uh, without even knowing it. So that's why I, I like to be clear that I'm not today building the kingdom. If I was doing that, I'd be building the wrong kingdom. I'm trying to win uh, souls through evangelism to the coming kingdom uh, that only Jesus can usher in. So I think Satan has us really fooled with all of this ah-mill, post-mill, uh, and also all this social justice theology. I think one of his greatest dupes, wouldn't wouldn't that be something, if Satan could deceive the church in her waning hours into into building the wrong kingdom? I mean, he would really have the last laugh, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, w I wouldn't be surprised at this, <laughs> at this point. Yeah, and this idea is not original with me. You can trace this thinking back to Clarence Larkin warned about this. A hundred years ago, uh, Dave Hunt, the late Dave Hunt of the Brian Call, in his, his book "Whatever Happened to Heaven," made the same point. So a lot of people have been saying this, and uh, unfortunately, people aren't listening. This is why eschatology matters uh, because it contributes to what you think your role should be in the present. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think part, I think part of that too is that I think we all we all do know that. Satan does work subversively. He does work where he's he's blending truth and error together and mixing it to where it's just wrong enough to to where it is heresy, but it's it's hard to decipher in that sort of thing. And I think that that's why an organization like the Gospel Coalition, where their entire stated premise is to unify around the gospel, yet when you look at their articles, you look at their conferences, there's hardly any gospel at all. All it is is just social justice. Kingdom now theology, you know, all, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, maybe that is 
Satan working behind the scenes and blending things together under the guise of the gospel in order to establish mm-hmm. his kingdom. Sure. And the only way you can get your thinking straight on this is to study eschatology. I mean, I, I wouldn't have the p- perspective I have on the proper role of the church and what we should be doing unless I was a student of eschatology. And I noticed that all these groups you're mentioning, the Gospel Coalition, I quote uh, Mark Dever in the chapter, he basically makes the point that it's a sin. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I had to go read uh, his sermon itself as a transcript to see if that was true, but he actually says it's a sin to post your millennial and wraps your views on your church website. Uh, and, well, if that's our mindset, if we're just going to stick our head in the sand related to eschatology, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you really don't know what to do in the present. And that's why eschatology is not just a pie-in-the-sky thing for ivory tower types. It's something every layperson and and Christian leader needs to wrestle through because it shapes what you think our purpose is in the present and what we can and cannot do realistically. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and, and I think part part of the issue too is that I think a lot of people end up taking the approach, and this is probably what Mark Dever's thinking about to a certain degree. But a lot of people kind of take the approach that oh, however God works it out, God will work it out. We just trust in Him, and us debating about or fighting about it isn't going to change anything, which is true because it's all in God's plan, God's timing, and that sort of thing. But then you look at it on the flip side is what's our responsibility as the church? What's our responsibility as Christians? And that implication, I think, is what changes depending on which eschatology you believe in. And I think, and I think, too, to a certain degree, it's the same kind of thing about why debating about Calvinism versus other other views of salvation and that sort of thing are important is because a lot of times it does change how you view the preaching of the gospel, how you view how you're supposed to live out your life and that sort of thing. And that's why I think having a lot of these debates and discussions are important, whereas it sounds like Mark Dever is just trying to, you know, shut it all down. Well, I mean, let's just turn this around a minute. What if the the church, the Protestant reformers back in the 16th century had just said, oh, whatever. Uh, I'm not going to use literal interpretation here. I'm not going to follow biblical authority. It's all in God's plan. I don't want to cause division. Well, we wouldn't have our understanding of soteriology that we have today. Uh, salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, etc. We wouldn't have that crystallized or codified or clarified. And all all we're doing is dispensationalists is taking the reformers' hermeneutic, which means interpretation. We're using their same hermeneutic, and we're just applying it to the whole Bible. The Protestant reformers just applied it to a portion of the Bible, but we're taking the hermeneutic and applying it to the whole Bible. And my friends in the creation movement are doing the same thing in Genesis 1 through 11, and they're coming up with a young earth perspective. We're doing it in the area of eschatology, so we're coming up with a pre-pre perspective. But we're just taking the Protestant reformers' method of interpretation and applying it consistently. And that's why it's mystifying to me that these uh, gospel coalition types that put the reformers on such a high pedestal uh, are so hostile to what we're doing as dispensationalists. To my mind, we're just functioning the same way the Protestant reformers did. But we're just doing it in, in another section of the Bible. 
Yeah. Now, what's what's the usual argument against like dispensationalism from a lot of these guys that that would be like your critics and that sort of thing? So, like when you're looking at the Gospel Coalition guys or the Mark Devers or any of the any of the other people we've been citing, like what's going to be their their critique and how you are interpreting how you are interpreting the Bible where they would be coming from a different perspective? Well, they don't see. We don't go out trying to find the conclusion. Okay, the conclusion is up to God. We're, we're just using a method. And if you use a method and it leads to a certain conclusion, then so be it. God has spoken, and it's his word, not ours. And I think what's happening with a lot of these guys is they don't like the conclusion that a literal method takes you to. If you've already bought into a pre-understanding that they're going to bring in better conditions through the through kingdom now, theology they're not going to want a literal interpretation of Bible prophecy because it teaches the exact opposite. And so a lot of them, you know, are upset about the conclusion. And so then they attack the method. They say it's too literal or whatever. But the reality is we're just using the same method that Luther and others used to rescue the church in the area of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, from the, the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages. And so, um, I don't know, to me, they're just coming up with excuses why they can't apply the same method consistently. Yeah. Now, now when we're looking at kind of how social justice has even kind of like infiltrated into the church, I feel like to a certain degree, there was the, obviously there was the problem with the guys like Tim Keller and, and his whole crowd and, and the offshoots of the emerging church and all of that. But then also there was this side on the more conservative approach, which was let's take a hands-off approach to all things political. And I think that to a certain degree that's allowed this teaching to infiltrate into the church. Have you have you seen the, the same kind of things that, that I'm feeling too when it comes to that? Because I just, I just feel like to a certain degree it's like they were able to infiltrate the church with like no resistance almost at all. Yeah, well, you have people like John MacArthur that wrote that book in the 90s, you know, about how government can't save you. I mean, I don't know anybody that thinks the government can save them, but he wrote a book with that title, and it was really a critique against conservative political activism. So that critique went out. Conservative political activism probably suffered to some extent. But then all of a sudden there's John MacArthur on the platform with all of these progressive at the Shepherds Conference with all of these uh, leftist Christians that are just as equal politically, just not on the right or the conservative side, but on the left. And he doesn't say a single thing about it. So it's to me it's like the 90s pushed conservatives out of the arena to make room for the progressives in the year 2000 and beyond. And so – you know, by the way, I'm not against political activism. I, I come from a conservative orientation, and um, I have many, many Tea Party activists, you know, in the, the local church that I pastor. But I'm very clear that those type of activities, they're not going to bring in the kingdom. They're going to slow down Satan's progress. Uh, they're going to slow down the progress into the new world order. And so I think God can use us in that vein. You know, we are called the restrainer. That's my understanding of Second Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7. The restrainer is the Holy Spirit through the church, and so we can have a role in slowing things down. But we shouldn't uh, falsely assume from that that we're bringing in the kingdom. 
So I don't know. It's almost like the conservatives vacated in the 90s, and that made room for the progressive uh, biblical, so-called biblical activists in the year 2000. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think, and I think also there, there, you know, you you mentioned Mark Dever and how he, you know, basically said we should we shouldn't be posting our es- our eschatology on our church websites. You've got guys like Russell Moore that are that are saying things like no more political activism, but really what they mean is no more conservative political activism. Yes, and yes. then you've got John MacArthur from the conservative side saying, okay, let's take a hands off approach. You know, Romans thirteen, we submit to all things. No. Uh, rebellion, our our country was founded in sin and things like that. Like I feel like basically it's almost like everybody was in lockstep to okay, let's push all the conservatives off to the side, let's do this, and then we can start ushering in this kingdom. It's almost like it's this intentional strategy for, with long term goals. Yeah, I remember there was a writer uh, around the year two thousand named David Kuo, if I remember his name right, K U O. And because he was he was a Christian criticizing Christian political activists, he all, all of a sudden got placed on all the, you know, cable television shows and everything. And he started to use all this kind of vocabulary that Christian conservatives should take a fast, you know, from their political activities. And I'm thinking to myself, how come that charge doesn't go out to liberal Christians who think they're bringing in progressive causes based on their interpretation of the Bible. Um, I mean, why is it always conservatives that need to back off? You know, why doesn't that uh, proclamation or edict or exhortation go out to those of, the, of uh, a biblical progressive nature? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean again, it, I think it kind of comes back to like, do you feel like all of this was intentional from the very beginning or do you think a lot of these guys were just kind of jumping on a bad wagon saying, oh, that sounds cool. I heard this thing in college seminary and, you know, conservatives should take a break and all that, that whole thing. I just feel like at certain points, like there, there was a lot of moving parts that all came together to make this situation where we're in right now happen. Yeah. Well, the question is, are human beings smart enough to pull that off in a conspiracy sense? Uh, a lot of people would say yes. There's a lot of conspiracy theory type uh, websites and things you can go to. But I more have a tendency more to think that man is really not smart enough to come up with something like that. I think, you know, as the Bible says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world. And I think Satan is using people like pawns all of the time. And so it may have been some kind of grand design in the mind of the devil. Uh, but I, you know, it would be hard for me to believe it was some kind of grand design in the thinking of fallen men. Of course, I could be flat out wrong about this. Maybe I'm not giving people enough credit. Uh, but I think Satan has always wanted to push conservatives out of the political process and bring in, you know, biblical, in quotes, uh, progressives. I mean, look at the separation between church and state. Words, by the way, which don't appear in the First Amendment. That has been used to push conservative biblical truth out of the public square. And then when the Muslims come and they want, you know, to have their Quran day or everybody dress up like a Muslim or stage your own jihad or whatever, suddenly the separation of church and state doesn't apply anymore. Nobody cares about the separation between church and state. Well, you sure cared about it in the 60s. When you're throwing the Bible out of everything, but when it comes to the Quran or humanism or the New Age, 
suddenly you don't care anymore. And so I look at that and I say that has to be sort of a, a grand design of Satan uh, to, to pull that switcheroo. Yeah. Now, you, you're, you're brought, you brought up Islam and you, and you brought that up. Where does that come into play when we're dealing with biblical prophecy? Because, you know, I've, I've heard some people say that when you look at, like, Islamic end times theology versus Christian end times theology, basically, like, the Christian perspective is looking at, like, the tribulation and that sort of thing as um, the Antichrist is bad, right? Whereas with Islam and their end times prophecy, like, their quote-unquote Messiah would actually be the Antichrist, like, are we kind of coming at this crash course where our two separate end times theologies are just going to kind of implode and, you know, crash and it's all going to come together all at one time? Or is like, is that biblical? I've only I've only heard people talking about it. I haven't fully studied that side of things. Yeah, I, I haven't studied that completely myself. I know there's voices out there like Joel Richardson that teach that. And I don't. I kind of hate to mention his name because I don't agree with his eschatology completely either. I don't think he's pre-trib, and I think he holds to an Islamic identification of the Antichrist, but which I don't. But one of the things that's interesting is at every point where Islam says something is good, the Bible, on the other hand, is pointing to that, what Islam is saying is good, as a fulfillment of end times prophecy being something bad. So it's almost like every step Islam takes in triumphalism is another fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Um, so that's sort of an interesting paradigm to think about. But there's no doubt in my mind that Islam is going to play a key role in the end times. I did write a little book about that called The Middle East Meltdown, where you know I trace those nine nations or so that will invade Israel in the last days in Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And you look at those very nations today, and there's no doubt that they are um, Islamic countries. And so Islam, no doubt, has some kind of role to play in the end times. And how it's all going to play out will be very interesting. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting, too, looking at the political world and how much of a push that there's been from the left in order to embrace Islam into our society. And then now we're even seeing a push within Christianity to where saying, you know, we worship the same God. We just have a different way of worshiping. And, you know, I've, I mean, even from some of the best seminaries and, you know, best colleges and that sort of thing, they're even preaching this thing. And then you've got the whole interfaith dialogue debate and that sort of thing. It just it just seems like there's just this progression where both outside of the church and then inside the church, and it's almost like they're in lockstep, and it's directly impacting us and our theology and I don't know, I feel like that's even concerning, just looking at it from prophecy end times, you know, as mm -hmm. we're moving forward. Yeah, the push of Islam from outside the church, the push of Islam from within the church, interfaith dialogue. I mean, I think those things would be expected in the if we're that close. Of course, we're not date setters, you know, but if we are getting closer, uh, Islam would have an ascendancy. I mean, if my understanding of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is correct, Islam ought to sort of make great strides in the last days. And lo and behold, that's what we're seeing internally, as you pointed out, and uh, externally. It's kind of like the church, the apostate church, is just uh, downstream from the culture. And what the culture has been promoting, um, you find that, you know, within the church. And at least of these massive internal inconsistencies like the feminists 
you know, want to march with Linda Sarsour. I mean, what a joke. I mean, do they understand what kind of life they would have, these feminists, under Sharia law? Um, and it's like they're willing to overlook blatant contradictions to cooperate with an agenda. Yeah. Now, I, I remember I remember hearing that there was um, a a seminary professor that that was preaching that in the Book of Job that they used the word Allah in the Book of Job, and then that is that was his proof text for we worship the same God. It's just a different way of worshiping. Like, do you know anything about, about like that sort of thing as well? Well, that particular thing, I mean, I don't know much about other than to, to call it for what it is totally ridiculous. I mean, the book of Job is the oldest book of the Bible. So the date for the book of Job would go back to the patriarchal era, uh, minimum 2000 BC. Uh, six centuries before the law of Moses and Islam didn't even come upon the scene until what the seventh century AD. So I don't know how they could find things in the book of Job and somehow when it's not a prophecy anyway, and Job largely is not filled with prophecies. It's got some in them, uh, tie that into Islam, but there are movements in the translation world called the insider movement where they, the Christians think that if they sort of adopt a word for God that's kind of like the word Allah, then Muslims are going to be one to Christ in droves. A lot of trans, Bible translating societies have bought into that, and that's what's called the insider movement. And if, if people uh, Google insider movement, they'll find all kinds of information on that. And then I thank God for voices like Sharam Hadian, who basically says, well, that's not how I got saved. I didn't get saved thinking the God of the Bible was similar to or equal to the God of Islam. I was told there were differences, and so I was offended. The Gospel, Galatians 5, verse 11, is an offense, and that's what brought him to faith in Christ. So our missiology, to a large extent, is going down the drain as well, because we bought into this idea that to reach Muslims, we've got to somehow come up with a brand of theology that's sympathetic to Islam. Yeah, which, which is really weird because I feel like we've already had this fight when it came to like the seeker sensitive movement of, you know, we're not, we don't need to build bridges with the world. We don't need to find, you know, like common ground and that sort of thing. I like to me, I feel like the key when we're going out and we're preaching the gospel is we need to show how polar opposite we are from the world, not show how similar and how many things we can cross over and that sort of thing. I feel like if if we want to win the lost, we have to show them how polar opposite their views are. And what's really weird is that now we're even seeing the guys that are that used to fight against the seeker sensitive movement now adopting these interfaith dialogues as a legitimate strategy to quote unquote build bridges. Yeah, it's it's completely and totally bizarre to listen to voices, uh, I don't mind mentioning names, like James White, who has done in the past some yeoman's work against the doctrines of Roman Catholicism, you know, pointing out the differences between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism, and to see that exact same fellow sitting there in that uh, interfaith dialogue with Yasser Qadi, calling him my mentor, and saying, you ought to make a movie to help educate us Protestants on the true nature of Islam. 
And by the way, we, we're going to be we're going to have to team up because we're going to have to fight the secularists. Well, ten years ago, he was saying the exact opposite related to Roman Catholicism and evangelicals and Catholics together. And all of a sudden now, recently, he's developed a soft spot in his heart toward Islam. So the, to my mind, the man, and I don't mean to just pick on him, there are many other people, he's just a visible example, has done a total 180. And, you know, I almost get whiplash uh, as my neck turns, <laughs> watching him change from one position to the next. I can only attribute it to the Bible predicts the rise of Islam in the last days, and we're seeing that externally and internally, even as people within the church are basically acting in a way towards Islam that they never used to have that tone and tenor towards Roman Catholicism. Yeah, well, you know, and again, I, I just I kind of keep coming back to this whole thing of you know when you've got somebody like James White, who I believe, if I remember correctly, he is, isn't he on mill? I think it is like you know eschatology wise. Like, I wonder how much of that is playing into this view of, okay, let's let's have all of our supposed, you know, God-believing uh, religions join together. Let's fight the enemy, and then we'll we'll duke it out later. I mean, I, I wonder how much of that is the yeah. strategy and the understanding as well. Yeah, kind of the idea that we're going to be here for a, a long while with each other, mm -hmm. and so we've got to get along, and... You know, his what what he said in that IFD whole scenario that we all covered what two or three summers ago. Yeah. You know, some of the things that came out in that as you watch the videos is the, the real enemies are the secularists and the humanists. And he would rather live under Sharia law, apparently, than he would under humanism. So therefore to fight the humanists, um, we've got a sort of tag team with the Muslims. Because at least both of us at the end of the day believe in God and we're theists. And that was the whole mindset of Colson, Charles Colson, in Evangelicals and Catholics Together, where Colson said, you know, we've got to fight the isms out there, humanism, communism, abortion, pornography. So let's get together with the Catholics and team up. And James White and John MacArthur and all these people were all over the case of Charles Colson, rightfully so. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to Islam, everybody has a different uh, different rule book. And so I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm just thinking too much. But <laughs> I, I look at all this stuff, and it's just astounding. Yeah, the time period that we're living in. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, I just I just feel like every time we turn around, there, there's some other contradiction that I never thought we would see. Like, yeah. like, I feel like James White, for the longest time, was one of the most credible apologists, like out there in the sense of, you know, he was he was considered, you know, smart, he had some of the best books. And then I feel like we're seeing the same thing with guys like John MacArthur. I mean, even even to a certain degree, guys like Piper used to be very, very revered within the theological camp. And then now he's gone off the deep end. Al Mohler, same thing. You could just go down the list. And for whatever reason, it just seems like over the last five years, we're seeing all these yeah. guys that should know better. And all of a sudden, now they're flipping. And they're. I feel like they're, uh, they're giving in to pressure from the world and progressive mm. ideology and it's it's just like one step closer to this one world government one world yeah. everything yeah and of course you know satan is behind the scenes you know manipulating everything towards his preordained 
conclusion, which is, you know, one, a one world government of state control and government control over everything. But I agree with you. It is very strange, uh, you know, to see John MacArthur make all of these sort of statements against ecumenism and against the Roman Catholic Church only to turn around and have all of these social justice warriors on the same stage with him that are advocating the exact opposite. It's it's sort of like, will the, will the, will the real James White please stand up? Well, the real John MacArthur, please stand up. And, the, and part of the problem is when we call people's attention to it, people think we're the bad guys because they're remembering James White as he used to be, not as he now is. And they're remembering John MacArthur as he used to be, not as he now is. And so they look at us as the bad people. You know, we're causing dissension. We're All we're doing is is pointing out the sharp u-turns all these guys are making yeah now now i kind of want to kind of get back into some of some of like the issues and that sort of thing and i and i and one of the things that i think is interesting is this fight that's going on both outside the church and inside the church over open borders and illegal immigration because i feel like what what's happening is we've had the u.n established since world war ii and and that's kind of like the centralized government that's going on and that they're trying to implement at least. But then it's like now they're trying to take away borders. And but now we've got pastors that are making the case that essentially we shouldn't have borders. We should just let everybody in and let everybody kind of free flow from country to country and that sort of thing. Like like if I feel like as Christians should we be taking a strong stand on this issue because of our beliefs on end times prophecy? Well, I'm in favor of taking stands on things where the Bible takes stands on things. I mean, that's our job. And passages are being manipulated over and over again to promote an open borders mentality. You know, passages are take, being taken completely out of context about do good to the sojourner who is living amongst you, not understanding that that word that's translated there, sojourner, is somebody like Ruth. You remember who was a Moabitess and wanted to go back to the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she said in Ruth 1, verse 16, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. So she was someone that wanted to play by the rules in the culture of Israel. She wasn't coming across the border to cause mayhem or to hurt people. She wanted to authentically convert to the culture of Judaism Well, she was allowed in, and so when the Bible says do good to the sojourner, that's the type of person it's talking about, not the person who enters with hostile intent. And when folks go to, oh, I don't know, what is it, Deuteronomy, I want to say 22, 23, right in there, um, God makes a prohibition about uh, certain groups entering the assembly up to the 10th generation. Um, he mentions a couple of groups. What is it? The uh, It's kind of fuzzy. I, it's been a while since I've looked at that verse, but I think it's the Moabites or the Ammonites can't enter the assembly until the 10th generation. Well, why was Ruth allowed to enter? Because she wanted to play by the rules. Why were these other groups not allowed to enter? Because they wanted to come across the border with hostile intent. So right there in the Old Testament, you see the distinction between legal immigration and illegal immigration. 
And so if the Bible makes that kind of distinction, then why can't I make that kind of distinction in my politics? Because after all, when you go back to Genesis 11, God is the author of the nation state. And you can't have a functioning nation state unless you have borders. So to my mind, if someone is promoting open borders, they're going directly against the word of God. And they're manipulating passages to make it sound as if the Bible promotes open borders when in fact it does not. Yeah, you know, and, and I think again, when we look at the implications of this moving forward, we know that the, we know that the strategy of the UN and of the end times uh, view of how the Antichrist is going to set up his kingdom and that sort of thing is essentially going to be open borders to a certain to a certain degree, one centralized mm-hmm. government and that sort of thing. And again, this this makes me question. I don't, I don't know what other word to use besides like the sanity or like the theological understanding of a lot of these pastors who are pushing for a lot of these progressive positions. It's like they should know better, right? Like, like when you, if you go to seminary, you should know what's supposed to happen in the end times and what the implications of what you're pushing for would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, um, I would call it a rent an evangelical mentality out there. Uh, whoever stands behind the pulpit is going to have some degree of moral authority to those he's speaking to. And so it's long been an ambition of the left to get spokespersons within the church and to desensitize the population to leftism. Uh, I remember very specifically when Obamacare was about to be passed, Nancy Pelosi, who was Speaker of the House at the time and now... God help us, she's the Speaker of the House again. Uh, talk about a nightmare on steroids on the rerun. But I remember specifically her talking about how, uh, I think she's Catholic, so-called Catholic. She wanted priests to preach on the importance of universal health care. And then she said, because that's the word of God made flesh. And I thought, what a manipulation of the Bible to take the concept of the incarnation the Word of God made flesh, John 1, verse 1, verse 14, and compare that to socialized medicine. But that shows you the mindset of, of the left. They want to rent an evangelical, and they want evangelical pastors to use the Bible in a perverted way to promote their progressive causes. And in the process, they want the population desensitized to leftism and progressivism, and as this happens, it's actually bringing in the world government of the Antichrist. Yeah, well, you know, and, and also, too, I feel like to a certain degree— Oh, and no, by the way, what happened to separation between church and state? That suddenly disappeared. Uh, so what they're really saying is separate conservative biblical understanding from the state. But we're okay with progressive biblical understanding as long as we're— mutilating these passages to promote progressive causes yeah well again that that's 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 the crazy thing to me about this whole progression of how things have have gone is that is that there's no consistency and, and clearly clearly all these guys are really pushing for a very progressive agenda and progressive ideology and that sort of thing but it's all under the guise of the gospel i mean even even back to the whole illegal immigration thing like it was literally one of I forget who it was, one of the Gospel Coalition guys, was literally making the case that we should have open borders so that way all the people can come from these third world countries to here so that way they can hear the gospel from us. And then you've got guys like John Piper 
where he's opposed to Christians ever opening a, or ever owning a firearm because if if that intruder he's probably going to be a non-Christian if he breaks into your house and you shoot him and kill him now he can no longer hear the gospel and he's going to go to hell and that's your fault as a Christian it's like <laughs> they're they're wrapping up all of this like leftist ideology and trying to combine it with Christianity and it's just it's creating more chaos than anything else yeah, well, the people that are doing that with borders are ignoring the passages I mentioned earlier related to the nation-state forming at the Tower of, of Babel. And the people like John Piper that are doing that with firearms are ignoring the words of Christ around Luke 22, I think it is, where he asks his disciples, do you own a sword? You know, sell your cloak and get a sword. Now, obviously, he's not teaching go out and conquer the world for Christ through the force of a sword like Islam does. But he's obviously advocating there's a there's a reasonable basis for self-defense in some circumstances. Now, I guarantee you, John Piper is not interacting with that passage. And the open borders people aren't interacting with early Genesis passages concerning the beginning of the nation state. So the fact of the matter is the Bible is not just a book about how to get to heaven. That's its most important topic, obviously, because that has eternal ramifications. But it comments on every single area of life. And when it's talking about an economic or political subject, it's equally authoritative there as it is when it talks about how to get to heaven through faith alone in Christ alone. And so... These guys that are using the Bible that way, they're obviously not very um, comprehensive in their worldview. They're not allowing the Bible to speak to every area of life. In fact, they're using one section of the Bible to rewrite other sections of the Bible. And the last time I checked, that's what the cults do. And so a lot of this stems from a really low view of Scripture, that the Bible couldn't possibly have something to say about firearms or economic policy or borders. And so, um, you know, know, to me, when I hear all this stuff, I just think of them as scripture twisters. Yeah. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about like economic things, because again, like one of the things that's predicted is a one world currency, right? Like, I feel like right now there's a, again, both in secular society and in the church talking about things like income inequality and redistribution of wealth. Um, and we've seen that we've, again, we've seen that from the gospel coalition and the Southern Baptist convention where they're talking about, they're talking about reparations for slavery. They're talking about, you know, taking, you know, taxing the rich, giving to the poor, you know, and I feel like, again, we're funneling and funneling as we're heading towards the end times. And it's like, clearly even, even the guys within the church are trying to establish reliance on the government. I mean, that's, that's an issue. So from a biblical perspective, what's, what's the case against relying on the government and for, like, capitalism? Well, um, to me, the biblical case goes back to Genesis 3, verse 19, where as part of the curse that was introduced to the fall of man, God is very clear, um, by the sweat of your own brow, you know, you will eat. In other words, if you want to survive, you have to work. Paul picks it up in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, when he says a man, uh, you know, if he shouldn't uh, work, he shouldn't eat. And over in 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about if a man will not provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. 
uh, someone who has denied the faith. So capitalism is the idea that I work and I eat. Socialism, which always turns into down the road anyway, communism and redistribution of the wealth is the exact opposite. It basically says you work and I eat. Not I work and I eat, you work and I eat. And that's why socialism and communism is has failed everywhere it's been tried. Look at what's happening in Venezuela, you know, where the middle class is eating out of – well, there is no middle class. <laughs> what used to be the middle class is eating out of the trash cans and they can't afford toilet paper and all of these kinds of things. Whereas capitalism, when it's practiced morally – has has tremendous economic power to lift people out of cap, uh, poverty. So to my mind, socialism, communism, wealth redistribution rebels against what God said in Genesis 3, verse 19. And capitalism is not a perfect system. We're not going to have perfection this side of the second coming. But it certainly is less imperfect than the others that are offered. And so, you know, I think early Genesis establishes capitalism through Genesis 3, verse 19. Also, one other quick thing is capitalism is built on, on the correct view of human nature. We're not inherently good. That's why we need the gospel. And so I'm not going to go out and work and sweat and unleash my creative potential through entrepreneurship, which employs others, if I can't benefit from my labor. Socialism and communism denies me of, of that. And so it's sort of like Atlas Shrugged, you know, where all of the producers just say, well, forget it. We're not going to invest into the economy anymore because we can't benefit personally. Um, people aren't going to work hard for the good of somebody else. Uh, socialism kind of expects people to do that. And that's why socialism eventually turns into communism because people don't want to do that. So now they have to be forced by gunpoint into doing it. So socialism has a wrong anthropology, doctrine of man. Capitalism has a correct anthropology, doctrine of man. And, and beyond that, socialism and communism is theft. I mean, it's what Walter Williams called institutionalized theft. And I think Thomas Sowell uses that same expression, institutionalized theft. You're voting to yourself – a large yes from somebody else, you know, that you didn't earn. Well, isn't that stealing? Today it's called government programs and wealth redistribution, but it's theft. And the last time I checked, one of the Ten Commandments, is it not, is against theft. So at, at point after point after point, you look at it, uh, socialism doesn't hold a candle in terms of a biblical worldview. Capitalism does. And beyond that, under socialism and communism, the ownership of private property is wrong. But but under capitalism, you can own private property. And I think the Bible is a pro-private property book because two of the commandments are don't steal and don't covet. And every time God gives a negative, he's protecting something. So when he says don't murder, he's protecting the sanctity of life. When he says don't commit adultery... He's protecting the sanctity of marriage. So when he says don't steal or don't covet, he's protecting the sanctity of private property, something that he wants. So it's almost as if uh, these are the reasons why capitalism has a tendency to flourish whenever it's tried fairly. 
and uh, communism and Marxism fail everywhere they're, they're tried. That's why the left hates America, because America is a tangible example of a, of a capitalistic society that has worked, that has lifted millions and millions and millions of people um, out of poverty. And they don't have that kind of example anywhere else in the world for socialism or communism. And because as long as America is free and prosperous, that contrast is available for anybody to see, their goal is to tear down America. So the contrast disappears. But anyway, you got me off there on one of my favorite subjects. No, no, not, not at all. But, <laughs> but you know, but it's, it's really interesting, like, looking, looking at this because, because I think, because I think to a certain degree we're seeing almost like backwards ideology when it comes to how money works, how business works, that sort of thing. But then also too, is, is socialism and ultimately communism, is that, is that going to essentially be what we're going to see in Revelation? Like when we're talking about like the, the, the economic situation that, that is predicted? Yeah, I, I asked, uh, Curtis Bowers. I think his name is Bauer. Bowers, you, you probably know him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was at a conference with him. You know, he's sort of an outspoken critic of Marxism, communism. I said, you know, what's the end game? You know, what is the Marxist end game? And he was very clear the end game is one world Marxism. One world total control of a person economically. And if you can control them economically, you can control what they say. You can control what they think. And that, folks, is right out of Revelation 13, 16 through 18. No one could buy or sell unless they received a mark, you know, on their right hand or forehead. So ultimately, capitalism will diminish as Bible prophecy is fulfilled. And communism, socialism, I think, leading to communism will win the day. And people will be controlled from cradle to grave uh, through this giant nanny state, which will... Sub, uh, subdue the individual uh, for the greater good of the, the corporate corporate of humanity and all of the rights that we have today will be gone including that right to private property I mean it's it's being whittled these are being whittled away right now in the United States it's really just a matter of time before they, they disappear completely and you can imagine what's going to happen to this country after the rapture when People like ourselves that think this way won't be around anymore to explain this to people. And you take away all of the Christians out of government and business and the economy, and you could see how fast this country would would bow to a socialistic uh, mindset. It's it's doing that already uh, with us here. You know, the great shock of the last election cycle for me was not so much the election of Donald Trump, although that was surprising. But it was the political survival of Bernie Sanders all the way through the Democratic uh, primary process. And he almost beat Hillary. Some people think he did beat Hillary. It's just Hillary cheated in a lot of different ways. And so, um, you know, the old days, if you called yourself a socialist, you know, you got 12 percent of the vote at best. And now here's Bernie Sanders calling himself a socialist and all of these young people, you know, are supporting him. And he almost becomes the Democratic nominee for the presidency of the United States. And that was really the great shock to me in the last election cycle uh, beyond the election of Donald Trump to the White House. Yeah. So that shows me that we're already, you know, his popularity already shows me that our 
capitalistic underpinnings are being significantly undermined in the thinking of a lot of people, particularly the next generation. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I've ha- I've had this theory about you know kind of like in times like you know like theology and eschatology and that sort of thing, and and I feel like I feel like what's happening is this time around there's a, there's a new strategy because in the past we've always seen there's they've always attempted to take over the take over the world by conquering other nations, right? You had Nazi Germany, you had the Babylonian Empire, you had the Roman Empire, and I feel like they always got close. But then God always kind of like, no, we're, it's not time yet, so we're gonna pull, we're gonna pull back, and then it would be another empire that would try it. But this is the first time where I feel like things are happening from within all these different countries, and you know, we I mean, we're seeing it in Europe, we we see it with the EU, now we're seeing it here in the United States with pushes towards socialism and just really fundamentally changing society away from Christian principles and that sort of thing. I mean, is this something where this this is a new strategy and it's going to be like? It, do you feel like it's this is going to be something that's going to be pulled back to potentially, or do you think that this is something that's like we're we're heading into end times? No, I, I think we're heading into it, and people will criticize me for saying that, but there's something that's happening right now in connection with all these other things we've been talking about that has never happened before in human history. And that's the regathering of the Jews to their homeland. So if these things were happening without a nation of Israel in unbelief in existence, I might say, well, you know, let's just kick the can down the road and this is just another cycle. But these things are happening in harmony with the reborn state of Israel. And that shows me the lateness of the hour. Uh, A lot of people today are using the expression convergence. I mean, all of these things are converging in harmony with biblical predictions concerning the nation of Israel. And so that shows me that um, this is not just another cycle, but we're actually entering the final hours of human history. And now how long will this uh, go on for? You know, I don't know. I'm not a date setter. I'm not a prophet. But the Jews in their land has never happened before regathering after 2,000 years of dispersion in harmony with all of these other things. That has never happened before in human history. People can dismiss it all they want, but it's almost like how many times in your life can you get struck by lightning? Uh, eventually, you know, the probabilities are stacked against you. And if you just look at this from a, you know, I, I, I wish we could get a, a, a probability statistician type to look into this and show us how statistically improbable it is that these things are happening serendipitously or coincidentally. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think as as we're looking at all of this stuff that's happening, everything's kind of converging. And I think that we as Christians obviously we know, okay, coming up next we've got the tribulation, we've got the rapture, we've got, we like we we know kind of like what's coming, we just don't know how long it'll be till we get there. So, between now and the next step what what is our mission? Because right now you've got the Gospel Coalition, you got the Tim Kellers, you got the Al Mullers, you got the Devers, you got that whole crowd that's that's saying our mission is is essentially to create all this harmony and fix all these perceived wrongs and oppressions and things like that. But what is our actual uh, mission as the church between now and the return of Christ? Yeah, you know, if you if you put yourself into a kingdom building project right now, you're totally and completely wasting your time. 
if you understand eschatology right, it should inform your ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. So I waste no time in my church on kingdom this and kingdom that and kingdom building and social justice this and social justice that and white privilege and redistribution of wealth and fixing the ozone layer or global warming or universal health care. Total waste of time to get Christians involved in that. We basically have three functions. Number one, to glorify God, Ephesians 3, verse 21. Number two, to edify the saints. In other words, build up in the things of God as a shepherd, those that God has entrusted to your care. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And get them healthy to the point where they can go out and share their faith and consequently accomplish worldwide evangelization or the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. And anything the church is doing that's not related to those three things, it's wasting its time. It's trying to do something that only God can do when he sets up his kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So so I think I think the key thing that I think that we need to remember as believers is if we, you know, if you want to call it, you know, kingdom building, our kingdom building is preaching the gospel. Our kingdom building isn't fixing these perceived wrongs or trying to make perfect harmony here on earth. It's we preach the gospel, we win souls, but it's the, it's the long term kingdom. It's not the kingdom yeah. right now. Yeah, because the church has not been tasked with setting that up. The doctrine of premillennialism from the Bible informs us of that. So. You know, people are always signing off on their emails for the kingdom and advancing the kingdom and doing kingdom work. I don't I don't bring in any of those slogans into my emails or into my local church. I mean, at the, the very best thing at very best what I'm doing is I am winning souls for the coming kingdom. I'm winning citizens of the coming kingdom. And that's why Paul calls us. Well, Christ, Matthew 13, 38 sons of the kingdom Galatians 4 verse 7 says if a son then an heir so we are inheritors of a kingdom that Jesus Christ will establish so if you want to say I'm expanding the kingdom that way fine but let's be careful about how we're (laughs) throwing these words around because a lot of people just toss these words around and they've never given any thought to them and in fact they're very important because they relate to the function and purpose and mission of the church. Yeah. So, so I think as we're looking at this entire kind of like cultural Marxist and social justice, uh, taking over the church essentially right now, at least the visible church, like sure. for, for us as Christians that are, that understand, okay, this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly does not teach this is, is our, is our mission and our focus is that, does that need to be on combating these guys? Does it need to be on discrediting discrediting them publicly, winning the argument, or is it just let's go out and preach the gospel? They do their thing, we'll do our thing, and we just try to reach the loss. Like, like, how do we as Christians kind of maneuver this whole essentially battle that's going on? Well, you know, we're all called to do different things. Some people are called to be more evangelists. Some people are called to be more teachers. Uh, Some people are called to be more defenders of the faith. Um, But I think at the end of the day, we just got to get back to what God said is our role. And how you express yourself that way and how I express myself that way is sort of up to the Spirit's individual leading. 
I mean, not everybody in the body of Christ would probably think about setting up a podcast like you're doing to discuss those issues, but I would assume this is something that God put on your heart to do. So this is what you're doing, and what you're doing is different than what I'm doing. But at the end of the day, we're all serving the same God for the same purposes that he has revealed. So I'm not against people exposing the Gospel Coalition and showing their unbiblical method of thinking. Uh, but other people may not be into that. And they may just be into straight evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, th- and I think either way, it's important that we do that. Because again, like what, like what the, what the Bible says is that we're all a part of the body of Christ, but we have different roles. We have different yes. things. And I think what ends up happening is, especially when we start getting into this whole like group think mentality of that, that is very progressive. But I think what ends up happening is that we start saying everybody needs to do X, Y, and Z. Everybody needs to, to care about the immigrants. Everybody needs to care about, X, you know, whatever it is. And I think it's important to remember that we are all individuals and the Holy Spirit convicts our lives in different ways. Obvi- yeah. Obviously, it's always going to support Scripture if the Holy yeah. Spirit's leading us. But that that's really what that comes down to as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't have two right hands. Mm-hmm. or two left feet or well my wife thinks I've got two left feet when I dance <laughs> with her but um, you know what I'm saying yeah I mean th- the whole analogy that Paul uses there in first Corinthians 12 is the body so how does your body function well each part of it plays a different role contributing to the whole purpose which is you or me as an individual and so that's how the church functions and it's just a matter of figuring out where we are in the body of Christ. Am I a mouth or am I a, an ear or an eye? And I need to be getting orders from the head, just like my body, the parts of it takes orders from my brain and the nerves, you know, endings and so forth that send out the signals for the different parts to fulfill their function. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing in the church. He's the head. Colossians tells us that. The book of Ephesians tells us that and, and and we're the body so what are you are you a mouth are you an ear are you are you a hand um you're only going to get that understanding from the head which is jesus so stay connected to the head and do what he's called you to do and at the end of the day the body will function harmoniously yeah Totally agree. And so, so if, if we're doing that, right. So if we're, if we're doing that, right. And so, so kind of as we're wrapping up as well, but I wanted to, you know, give you the opportunity to kind of share how people can follow you and, you know, check out some of your books and writings and things like that. Because I think that one of the things that we need to do is we do need to promote that people do get educated on these issues. So that way, when they see either this kind of ideology infiltrating the, their church locally or just in general, that they know Here's what scripture actually says. Yeah, well, the book that I wrote that deals mostly with the things we're talking about here is a book called The Coming Kingdom. And you can find that uh, on my website, andywoodsministries.org. You can also find that on Amazon or, you know, wherever, I guess, wherever books are sold. It's available in in ebook format or however, however you like it, really. And it, it sort of explains part one, what does the Bible teach about the kingdom, teaching this idea that we're not in the kingdom now. The kingdom is future. 
And then part two is what are the passages people misuse to say we're in the kingdom? And then part three is why does it matter? Well, it matters because your view of the kingdom changes the, the purpose and the scope and the function of what you think the church ought to be doing in the present. So I would love for people to get a hold of that book. And they can also, I'm teaching through that particular book at my local church. They can find all my sermons and topical and expositional on our website, Sugarland Bible Church, www.slbc.org. And people can keep track of me. Probably the most popular outlet we have is my YouTube channel. And um, people can sign up on that for free. We upload teachings on there probably three, sometimes four times a week. And you can look at the various playlists and see the different topics of teachings that we're doing. Uh, my Revelation series is being gradually uploaded on that as I teach a lesson each Sunday. We're in Chapter 16 now. Uh, my series on the kingdom is being uploaded there and other things. So just type in Andy Woods, pastor's point of view into the YouTube search engine. You should find it. So between that and andywoodsministries.org and Sugarland Bible Church, www.slbc.org, where you can get audio, video, transcripts of all the teachings People will have more of me than probably what they want, what they're interested in. But my stuff is out there, and that's why we put it out there so people can grow in their faith. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing too that I, that I'm always telling people as well is don't just rely on things just because let's say you or I say things. Always take things back to scripture, compare it with scripture, and see that it's true. Like you and I are not infallible; only God's word is, and that and that's that's the key, I think. Um, yeah. Well, I tell people at the church that all the time. I say, look, um, I don't think I'm in here intentionally trying to mislead anybody, but I'm the, – the Bible is inspired. I'm not. I'm just a fallible Bible interpreter, and I could get things wrong. And so your ultimate authority needs to be the Word of God, which means you have to know the Word of God, and you have to put everything you hear from this pulpit or anywhere else to the test. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. And we need to be Bereans. Acts 17, what is it, around verse 11, where the Bereans were considered more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with great eagerness. You know, they weren't unteachable, but they searched the scriptures daily, daily, to see if the things Paul taught were true. And Paul doesn't call them a bunch of closed-minded people. Uh, Luke, in the book of Acts, commends their nobility for their practice in doing this. So we believe in the priesthood of all believers. And so search the scripture yourself, regardless of what Andy says or Jeff says or anybody else. Yeah, and, and I was just looking at the comments really quick over here on the, on the Facebook comments. And I know Elizabeth just asked uh, if you're doing anything with uh, WVW coming up soon. Because I think, I think you know you pretty consistently record over there with Brandon and... And that sort of thing as well, right? Yeah, I mean, he takes my – I do a podcast, well, YouTube, face, Facebook Live thing. We're not – we haven't yet gotten into podcasting, but Facebook Live, which is uploaded on my YouTube channel. But Brandon at WVW will post that podcast you know, every single week so you can find it on his app. And I'm also on with him 
usually every other Tuesday related to Bible questions that people send in on his live uh, uh, radio show. And the last couple of years I've spoken at his conference, uh, which I think happens um, beginning of May, if I remember right. And I'm speaking at it again this year um, in the Ozarks. And so, um, yeah, Brandon uh, has, has helped me a lot in terms of getting my ministry out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, before a lot of people. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. And, and he's he's definitely got a platform for that for that sort of thing as well. So, mm-hmm. um, and and then for everybody else as well, like if if you guys want to go ahead and pre order the book Social Injustice, you know, Andy's chapter is on eschatology and uh, and how that relates to social justice. So a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today, we've got a lot of other great authors as well. We've got uh, Brandon Howes wrote a chapter. We've got Ken Peters took on the issue of abortion. Mike Spaulding, mm-hmm. Tom, like the list just goes on and on. Um, go to socialinjusticebook.com. You guys can use the code Andy, get the free audiobook version of Social Injustice. And, um, and then if you guys uh, want, like, subscribe here on Facebook. I'm going to post this over on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, we're going to keep doing these live podcasts. I, I'm, I'm enjoying the lives and seeing the comments. And as people are interacting, it's, it's kind of fun. Yeah. And one other thing I do have, um, uh, on TV 30. That, that that Brandon produces and post edits is uh, a, a half hour show that I have on uh, Bible prophecy called Prophecy Update, and so you know people can access that. I usually do subjects related to prophecy, like I did a teaching on the, the Rapture over thirteen weeks and Gog Magog and literal Babylon and. Um, the signs of the times and I'm actually getting ready to do one on Calvinism, you know, neo-Calvinism versus the Bible. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's another thing people can tap into. That's more of a TV show. Okay. Very cool. Well, thank, thanks so much for doing this and sitting down. I always enjoy our conversations. I feel, I feel like it's always fascinating. I'm, I'm always learning something new too. So, well, thank you. I appreciate you doing this and, um, I appreciate the, the tone <laughs> which you 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 have uh, decided to to do this uh, i don't feel like when i come on here it's going to be a a cat fight you know it's just a honest time of inquiry and edification so yeah well uh, it, it, but then, and and, and, pe- and people have commented too when they watch you or they watch me on your show they they like that cuz i think they see enough of the uh, gunfights elsewhere yeah. Well, you know, you know, and I, and I think for me that was kind of part of my motivation too with this is like I'd rather find out what people actually think and what they believe because I know like, you know, I, you know, even just with you and I like we'll disagree on certain things. I've had you on one time we talked about some things with lordship salvation and calvinism and I tend to be more on the opposite side of the spectrum than you. But at the same time it's like let's yeah. let's talk it out and let's discuss it and it's okay and let people compare with scripture. Yeah, it's called conversations with Jeff, not screaming matches. So. Yeah, I feel like that that needs to be the tagline. I think. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about the church becoming like the world. I mean, we're we're becoming just like cable TV, mm-hmm. where they're screaming at each other, and you know, you wonder at the end of the day, is this really what God has for us? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, again, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on and doing this. And I really enjoyed it. We'll have to, we'll, again, we'll do it again sometime down the road. And, but it's, it's always, there's always some sort of <laughs> thing we need to discuss and, oh, yeah. and, and, and that sort of thing. So very good. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much, Andy.
This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PrEP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforyoumc.org.